I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, I'm so excited to be here um, to celebrate the publication of Isabel Wohl's fantastic new novel, Cold New Climate, with this gorgeous, gorgeous cover, which is also the debut publication of a new publishing initiative called Weatherglass Books, which has this lovely sort of flower logo on the spine. Um, I am Lauren Elkin. I'm coming to you live from Liverpool. And Isabel is coming to us live from Connecticut. So this is the kind of conversation that we can only really have um, in this weird pandemic moment. Um, not quite post-pandemic moment, but I think, you know, for my part, it is one of the 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 sort of happy side effects, I guess, that we get to do these things um, that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do and have everyone here from, I'm imagining, lots of different places. So, Isabel, welcome. I'm, I thought I would read your bio and ask you to read from the book. Is that okay? Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm so happy to be in conversation with Isabel because she's absolutely a writer whose work I really respect and have blurbed earlier. And so I'll give you the the bio spiel. She's a writer and visual artist from Brooklyn, New York. For seven years, she lived in London, where she studied at the Royal College of Art. And she's the author of a short story collection, Winter Strangers, from the fabulous publisher Ma Bibliothèque, which came out in 2019. Um, and Cold New Climate is her new novel. But I wanted to read you the blurb that I did for um, Winter Strangers because I'm very proud of it as far as blurbs go. But no, seriously, it's like just she's she's such a good writer and i'm so excited for you guys to discover her work so isabel wool's stories have an unsettling immediacy charting with a keen eye our coldness and cruelty our resilience and small pleasures and tiny perversions they're like devotions to a strange and wonderful god so there are words there that i picked up on from this very slim you know story collection a couple of years ago coldness tiny perversions small pleasures keen eye charting all of these these sort of, I don't know, all these concepts, I guess, are just keys into cold new climate. And so I'm, you know, I'm so excited just to see the the transition, the evolution from Winter Strangers to this novel. Um, and yeah, I think I'll, I'll just let Isabel take it from here and, and you guys can find out for yourselves. Thank you so much for that, Lauren. Um, I really loved that blurb too. And I, I felt that it was so perfect. So thank you so much for, for bringing it back into our conversation, because I, I think it actually will be quite useful. Um, I'm going to read to you guys from sort of the end of chapter one into the beginning of chapter two. So we're sort of around 10 pages into the book. Um, and we've met our protagonist, Lydia, who is in her late 30s. And she has uh, been in a relationship with a man called Tom for a very long time, and Tom is much older than she is. Tom also has a son from a, a previous relationship, um, and his name is Caleb, and he's around, uh, he's 19. Um, so Lydia has effectively been his uh, stepmother, essentially. Um, and after a long time in this relationship, Lydia has become quite bored with Tom, and so she's gone off to Greece 
to sort of um, take a break from their relationship and um, hopefully perhaps have some kind of dalliance and reinvigorate her her life in some way. Then I'm just gonna, gonna pick up here. On the 20th evening of her stay in Greece, Lydia arrives at the bar later than has been her custom. Again, she orders a beer. Again, she sits outdoors at the high table. The usual girls enter with their soft curved shoulders and painted lips with charming and effective distance in their eyes and in the casual tilt of their chins. Young men follow them. As on the nights before, they walk past Lydia. Tonight there is a man who looks at her. She looks back. He is not young, but younger than Tom is now. And as they continue to speak, she notices an Australian accent's strange heights and attenuation. At the house, she offers him something to eat and without waiting for a response, opens the refrigerator door. An arm reaches around her waist and she stumbles and grabs a chilled plexiglass shelf. She stands up and turns around. She takes off his shirt. Not far from his hip, there is an inch long horizontal scar. What's that from, she says. You should close the fridge. Oh, says Lydia, and closes the fridge, just as the man is saying, appendicitis. Now the house is very dark, and Lydia feels with utmost sensitivity how cool the terracotta floor is on the soles of her feet, and how warm by comparison the worn wooden floor of the bedroom, and then cool again the sheets on her shins, thighs, back, face. Vomit on me, says the man. What? The man says again what he wants her to do. Put your fingers down your throat, says the Australian man, and vomit on me. I don't want to do that. Please, please at least put your fingers down your throat. Please at least gag for me. The next morning, Lydia does not watch the sunrise, but instead feels its diffuse light coming through the curtains passing over the form of the man sleeping behind her to touch the back of her left ear. Across the room, she can see the low wooden table and on it, the red lamp, pan cord curled around its base and its plug lying to the side, unused. On the wall above hangs a painting of globular and emotional peaches encircled by a blue mark meant to indicate expressively a bowl of the kind one might find on a kitchen table in a house like this. In a countryside like this, you might expect to find a rough-hewn kitchen table and on it a bowl of ripe fruit on which bumblebees and wasps, wasps might land. There are no wasps in the painting. Lydia wonders if the artist feared that if he or she painted a wasp or a bee or a fly, it would come out a black spot. And a black spot could look like mold or some other damage, a hole made by a worm. Outside, a bird calls. The man's arm is heavy on her side. Lydia can see the sun in the lashes at the outer corner of her left eye. Then again, Lydia has not taken the trouble to look closely at the painting when walking from the doorway to the bed or when leaving the bedroom in the morning. There might be, invisible from this distance, a wasp with thin flat wings, neat head and thorax, long curving abdomen and brutal point. Awake, the man embraces Lydia. Afterward, she lies on her right side with his forearm under her neck, his belly against her back, and soon with his free arm, he reaches for his phone and retrieves it from the windowsill. He mentions work. Things at work are very urgent now. Then he reaches his arm back around Lydia and holds the phone in both hands near her face. Lydia is not sure if she should look down into the sheets or up at the ceiling or unabashedly at his phone as he inputs his passcode and opens his Gmail. She closes her eyes. Do you have service? She asks. I don't have service. Did you get a Greek SIM? Yes. Then I don't know. What carrier? 
The man has marks on his back, long pink ones. In the light spilling in from the still curtained window, Lydia notices them as he puts on his shirt. Oh, she says, I'm so sorry. And he says, about what? And she tells him she has noticed pink marks, shallow, tender excavations. Don't worry about it. He pauses, then says, oh, I know what you're talking about. That's not you, they're old. When I was a child, I was attacked by an eagle at the Adelaide Zoo. Did I ever tell you about it? It came out of nowhere. We only met yesterday, says Lydia. They have not talked about his childhood or the zoo. Right, of course, says the man. He tells her a story. He was a child in Australia in the late 70s. His mother and his father worked long hours and did not have much time off. When they did, they took the family to the zoo. On one of these occasions, he and his brother were walking across the central lawn on their way to see Greater the Flamingo, having spent the morning with the gibbons and the stick insects, when he felt the cuts by which his shoulder and upper back opened into the lines she now sees. He could not see the eagle, but he could see his brother who saw the eagle. The boy who was being attacked by an eagle felt points of claws first over his scapulae and then crossing the back of his neck and finally in the delicate hollow above the clavicle. His brother did not know what to do. They are called fossa, the doctor told him later, those vulnerable soft bits, because the boy asked. As he was getting stitches, he thought, Fossa. When he emerged from the doctor's office, his red-eyed mother was sitting on the low beige sofa, clutching his brother, her face in his neck and one hand grasping at his blue striped shirt. Then she took them both for lemon ices and on the way home in the car, she cried again and said they should not have gone to the zoo. But it wasn't even a zoo eagle, the man says. It was just there. Then how did it get in, asks Lydia. Open air zoo, says the man. After the man leaves, Lydia looks at the peach painting again. There is no wasp. She goes from room to room, looking at seashells, books in English, books in Greek, books about Greece, torn magazines, stones, bits of paper that testify in small purplish print to the purchase of things that are to her unreadable, Snapshots, more paintings, paintings of the beach. She looks at the shape of the sofa from across the den and from close up at its abraded and sun-worn fabric. She told herself she would not call Tom while she was away and more to the point, she told him she would not. Downstairs, she finds a tortoiseshell cat asleep on a shelf of white linens. She carries it in her arms the front door and places it outside, shuts the door and leans against it and listens to the yowling. Later, Lydia opens her laptop and uses the dongle to get online. She Googles the Adelaide Zoo, Googles vomit fetish and finds a Wikipedia page for a metaphilia that traces the fetish's increasing popularity to the video, Two Girls, One Cup, does not watch Two Girls, One Cup, but reads the Wikipedia page about it watches one reaction video and then another. A young man looks at the camera and says, damn, while his friend is typing in the link. They cannot get it to work. Don't put a dot com on, another friend is saying in the background. The man who is typing furrows his brow. The music starts. Lydia discovers that the greater flamingo greater was the oldest living member of the species Phenicopterus roseus when it died in 2014. Six years earlier, the blind bird had been attacked and beaten by teenagers. Its beak was damaged. Its caretaker was encouraged days later that it could hold up its head. Thank you. Um, I think I'm unmuted now. Um, I think I'm, I think I'm back. Yeah, wow, that was, okay, great. That was um, eviscerating, really. But, and yeah, the book sort of goes on <laughs> like that. I wonder, I'm, I'm always interested, uh, as a writer who's very bad at this sort of thing, um, interested in how 
writers decide which parts of longer projects to excerpt either for readings or you know publication and things and so I, I sort of have my own thoughts about this passage which I can share if you're interested but I'm more interested to hear why you selected that particular passage and how it sets up the book for you for the reader for me for whoever um well I'd love to hear your thoughts too eventually but um I chose it for a couple of reasons I mean one reason is a simple practical reason which is that it 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 feels like a mini story and it feels like a nice thing to be able to offer people in a situation like this, um, like this event, you know, that it has a sort of um, conclusion in and of itself. Um, but I think also because it um, it's kind of a major turning point in the book, actually, because as I said, when I was introducing the reading, she, she goes off to Greece thinking that she is going to have some sort of dalliance that is going to be enjoyable for her and it turns out to be quite different from from what she expected so there there's this reversal in it that really sets off a lot of the the action of the rest of the book and i think also establishes some of the the tone of the book in terms of these sort of um non sequiturs that come in like the man suddenly saying appendicitis or you know these sort of the man saying you should close the fridge these sort of um disjunctures that that don't quite work so i think yeah from a narrative perspective it's a turning point and then also from a stylistic perspective it it starts to establish some things i think about the voice of the novel yeah and there's this kind of lurking feeling of menace but like why you know they're in greece it's lovely in greece why you know why should there be anything to spoil what should be as you say this like you know perfectly fine interlude i mean fine apart from the vomit on me which by the way <laughs> it's hysterical but hysterical in, in in like a larry david kind of way where you're like uh, is this really funny am i a pervert for thinking that's funny is anyone else laughing but the whole the whole book has that kind of wry almost black humor to it. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, black humor. I don't know. How do you think about humor in, as, as a kind of element? Yeah, it's, it's not it's funny. Kind of surprised me. Yeah, it is funny. I mean, it surprised me as like something that has sort of like crept up in my writing, which I I didn't really anticipate because I, I don't really I don't really try for it to be funny. I mean, I guess the cliche is that if you try too hard for things to be funny, they aren't. Mm -hmm. But like another thing that I think is funny is for me is, um, well, the appendicitis moment is really funny to me or the mm -hmm. open zoo is kind of funny. Um, I guess it's just these sort of juxtapositions or non sequiturs where you sort of like run up against the idea that the world doesn't doesn't work as you expect it to. And yeah. there's sort of an inherent humor in that, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't operate the way it does in books, except this is a book. It's just, you know, I have, I have complex feelings about the idea of realism and, you know, what that might be or what value, mm -hmm. you know, verisimilitude might have in a novel. And I think, you know, there's a conventional way to represent reality on the page. And, and I, we're sort of accustomed to stories that are told in that conventional way that that in their convention come apart from the, the real world that they're meant to be representing. Um, but in those moments where you kind of, as the author, are, are wrong footing us as a way of kind of getting at the way that we we ourselves are constantly wrong footed and surprised and disjuncted, as you say, or, you know, think we're responsible for something, but we're not. I, I don't know. There's There's something really yeah, I, I feel like I need another word other than like realist for that. Um, we need another scale of value in fiction other than realism that that tries to get at how this is a lot like life. You know, it would almost be like surrealism if that weren't already something else. <laughs> yeah, that one's taken. I think. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Sorry, you go ahead. No, no, I think. Um... I think you're right. And I, I mean, I think a lot of it, um, I guess I always feel like I, I'm writing from a place that things don't really make sense. And mm -hmm. the characters are sort of, um, 
I don't know, like just trying to keep the language where the characters are and trying to keep things like the observations sort of pared down enough that mm -hmm. you do have this feeling of like trying to be accurate, I guess, rather than necessarily trying to um, pull things together too much. Like I, as I was reading this or preparing to read it, reading it to myself, I noticed that like when, when the guy reaches around Lydia, reaches around the fridge, mm -hmm. uh, or reaches around her when she's leaning into the fridge, an arm reaches around her, not his arm, which is mm -hmm. like, I mm -hmm. didn't think about that when I was reading, but it's it's a very weird decision in a way, because on the mm -hmm. one hand, I think I would argue it's more immediate because what she's actually, like what she's actually feeling is an arm because she's mm -hmm. not seeing him, she's paying attention to the fridge. So you could argue that that is sort of more just about the details of what's actually going on mm -hmm. rather than sort of mm -hmm. me asserting myself as author and trying to describe what he's doing mm -hmm. when she's not looking mm -hmm. at him. Um, mm -hmm. And it's more of a surprise, which is her experience. But it's also like very weird that it's like an arm, some random arm. So I think, yeah. I don't know, when you read your blurb about the unsettling immediacy, I kind of thought of that moment that I think um grab yeah that that some of the detailed observations are actually where the mm. the strangeness of the book kind of asserts mm. itself. The thing uh that struck me also just then when you were reading was the 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 part about the wasp, which I think was something else that I'd kind of I mean I read it and it registered on some level, but I also you know, kept going because it's early in the book and I'm like, you know, okay, what's going to happen? Where is this taking me? Um, and so, you know, there's there's this notion of menace and it's not quite clear what it is. It could be rot or it could be a bug, you know, in the painting. But it's just that level of attention to detail um, that I think is a real hallmark of your work. It's something that came out again, I mean, again and again, but one of the moments that really sticks out in my mind is Caleb. Once we start seeing things from Caleb's perspective, there's a moment when he's at the museum, um, kind of on a date with this girl who fancies him. And he's, I don't know if this is to do with his depression, and you can, of course, you know, talk about that, but he's like surveying himself as he's engaging with her. And she's doing the thing that we do when we go to museums to, with other people. You like talk about the work and you try to sound smart and you know, he's, he makes an observation that is completely in the register of like, I'm on a date at a museum looking at art and I'm trying to sound smart. And it's something that feels very false and hollow to him, but she's like very happy that he said it because, oh, he's engaging, he's playing the game of we're looking at the art and talking about it together. And he feels like he's lied to her or something. And it's, yeah. so it's like this granular detail, it's almost imperceptible, you know, even within ourselves, like to have that level of attention to yourself to be like i'm at the museum playing a game with this person i don't really care about and it's making her very happy so i'm going to keep doing it i wonder if you could say a bit about that that kind of granular specificity this scrutinizing detail i don't know i i guess it's just an attitude of wanting everything i'm, I'm just a very detail-oriented person <laughs> everything to really work and and sort of figuring that i want to articulate specifically what i really want to say which is means just using everything that is available and and sometimes i think means saying less you know and allowing certain things to be be undetermined like where the the characters sometimes as you say especially caleb will be sort of aware of of putting on a face to the world and aware that something they're doing is sort of false and then have the sense that something is really off between between what they're doing and themselves, but then not have like a sense of necessarily what they really think or what they really want, you know? So you have the sort of external thing, which is not right. You have the sense that something's not right, but you don't have a sense of like, what is the the other thing that would be right, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, yeah, just trying to construct these little moments that I think allow that sort of, I mean, I don't know if that's quite a theme of the book, but I think it's one of the major aspects of the book is that a lot of the inner feelings of the characters and the reasons why they do what they do are 
not necessarily, um, I don't necessarily pin them down. And I think a lot of the, the stylistic choices of the book come out of that in a way. And yeah, one of those I think is the moment that you're, you're describing. Without getting too bogged down in plot, because um, yeah. that's what happens is, you know, it's important in the book and we're not going to give away, you know, the big spoilers, but it's to me, not the thing that keeps you reading necessarily. Um, but what I'm, what I was so fascinated by is this relationship between Lydia, K Lydia and Caleb and she's, you know, essentially his stepmother. I mean, it's not clear how young he is when she starts dating his father, but it's clear enough that he's young and she's also yeah. quite young. And yeah. so it's, there's, it's like, I know you're not commenting explicitly, but there's an, an element of discomfort. Um, you know, as a mother of a quite young boy, it's like, oh, what? And so there's like this gray area between fiction and, and ethics and fiction and morality. And it's, it's not really clear, first of all, what's happening, but you're, but you sort of know what's happening. And then as it starts to become clear what's happening, it's like, what are we getting at in terms of, like what's right, what's not right, how is this redefining or asking us to redefine how we think about relationships when, you know, Tom, the older professor, can be dating this much younger woman and everyone just kind of takes it for granted that that's what older professors do, they date younger women. Um, but when an older woman starts dating a younger man who, you know, en plus was her, sort of her stepson, it's just, it, it, this affect of like, I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know what I think about this kind of, you know, comes floating out of the book. It's, it's, it's really powerful. I, I can't even talk about it. I think that's why I'm, I'm like stammering my way through this question. No. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think you articulated it very well. It is um, also like discomfort is difficult to articulate anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But which I think is maybe something that, that like motivates some of the style of the book. So people get how we, how we get there from the Greece thing. Lydia comes back. I just want to give a little info. Lydia comes back oh, yeah, from Greece to find out that Tom, the much older partner, has fallen in love with somebody else while she was away, which is not really a betrayal because Lydia herself wanted them to be able to both see other people. And then Lydia is very shocked to find out that Tom is is ending their relationship just when, in part because of the um, situation with the Australian, her attitude has sort of changed and she now in some ways realizes that she actually really liked him. And so she experiences this as like a a huge shock and she's very angry and then eventually reconnects with Caleb, Tom's son, and they eventually begin a relationship and yeah I think one of the reasons why I wanted to go back to what happens before is that I think it's it's like that relationship really comes out of that springboard of events for me like when I mm -hmm. started writing the book I was very interested in the idea that, that she felt um she felt that like Tom should not have left her, that, that what he did was like somehow wrong, even though it was fully within what could reasonably be expected from maybe wanting some time apart and having him think maybe she was going to leave him. And so I think this feeling that like that she's somehow entitled or that she somehow has like some kind of grievance or like a need for revenge or something. And then. Mm -hmm how do we think about like does that even in terms of how we think about what happens between Lydia and Caleb and how uncomfortable we might be about it does her feeling hard done by does that does that make any difference does the you know the situation you were describing that Tom was like her professor does that make a difference um Caleb, as I think you mentioned, has had some um, issues with depression and with various substances. And so he has, you know, had a difficult few years, but is now sort of coming out of that. So, you know, does that matter that he's sort of more vulnerable? And yeah, I think I, I wanted to. I wanted, I guess, to have the reader be trying to figure out whether or not it was OK 
for a lot of the time because I, I did not want to make him so young that it would be obviously completely wrong. But, you know, still, I think it's very reasonable to, mm-hmm. to be uncomfortable. But like, can somebody agree to something that other people would be uncomfortable? You know, certainly you would say that like, people can have relationships that other people think are really, 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 really weird, you know? Mm-hmm. And how do we define, because just to be clear, he, he does want this, or he at least says that he does. So to say that, you know, to say it's not okay is to say that he is not really capable of, I don't know, of agreeing to do a relationship with her or potentially with anyone. And and I, I think it's tricky territory. And I, I wanted mm. to to make it that way. Mm. And I would also just say briefly, I think it changes as the book continues. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the really, the most effective ways that you kind of explore the parameters of is this okayness is through the social world that Lydia and had entered into with Tom and Mm -hmm. all of his friends and you know the way that they treat her differently you know over the course of the book whether through like flashbacks to when she and Tom were together and she would go to these interminably boring dinner parties with him and no one took her seriously she was always his like you know bit of fun on the side or whatever even though they're together quite a long time and then um to like how they're kind of condescending after they break up and she's kind of marginalized um, and then to their reaction once she's with Caleb. And it just strikes me, I'm thinking about the title now and, you know, I do want to talk about climate in the, you know, actual climate change sense, because that's obviously an important part of the book. But this idea of like her, she's left the kind of safety of the of the bourgeois you know lifestyle it is so it is so bourgeois i have this idea of living on the upper west side together um and not that there's anything wrong with the upper west side like but anyway their life like his apartment his friends it's so like oh i can see why she felt (laughs) but then once she's kind of cast out of that it's like she's been in an airplane and been you know thrown out into the air into this cold new climate where like She's out of place. She's just like mm. literally out of place. And he, Caleb, is out of place. And so they kind of maybe find they're trying to find a new place together and then they set off on their mm. on the road trip. But again, I don't want to go too far, you know, oh, yeah. into into yeah. the book. I'm sorry, I'm afraid of no, no, there's some big things that happen and I don't want to give them away. <laughs> so yeah, I wonder if this idea of out of placeness or or searching for a, a kind of less cold climate, um, how that yeah. might come into play. Yeah, I definitely wanted the title to to have that that valence, you know, that it refers to the atmosphere of of her new situation as well as like the literal climate. Um yeah, I mean I think Tom is is this like extremely bourgeois existence, but she also like she, I think she kind of wanted that. You know, she had like a complicated mm-hmm relationship uh-huh. to it and I think um I don't know I in some ways I think she she a lot of it I guess is about the sort of quest for for social status in a certain way for her uh-huh. and yeah. um one of the reasons I mean I said I I didn't want to make Caleb too young because I also you know because I I wanted the ambiguity but one particular way that manifested itself was that I really wanted to kind of write these scenes where um his you know well Tom's friends and Lydia's friends sort of react to um to seeing them together and I think it's is very interesting as kind of an absurd um kind of shocking um uh, moment because you know what are people supposed to do whereas if he's too young then it's like people call the police and and then it ends. <laughs> it's not supposed to be funny but you know you know what I yeah. mean it's, I don't know I I think definitely that climate is sort of a tone. And I guess also stylistically, one could say, you know, the, I think the, there's a coldness in the, the writing style as well, mm-hmm. um, could be another, another um, sort of implication potentially mm. of the time. How, how do you understand coldness as a style? Because that's something I wanted to ask you, you know, from, from writing a book called Winter Strangers to writing this one, Cold New Climate, what does coldness signify to you what does it how does what does that help you access 
I don't know. Yeah, I need to. The next thing I write needs to be called something that doesn't have to do with the uh, cold weather. Um, but I, yeah, I think it has to do with a kind of restraint and a sort of harshness, I think, in the language. And I guess also feeling that um, maybe there's a lot going on that's sort of not yet articulated or that is, you know, sort of about to burgeon forth in some way but is kind of held in held in some tension that that doesn't necessarily fully i don't know lead lead to things being fully expressed or fully um made explicit let's say perhaps that a lot of what is happening is sort of i think under the surface rather than full flower as it were um yeah, and I, I want to come back to the idea of climate as in the actual climate, um, but I, I also want to stick with this idea yeah. of coldness and affect and, and I don't know materiality. I'm I'm so interested in the fact that you're also a practicing visual artist, um, yeah. and I think you know from a little bit of Google stalking that I did, um, I think your work at your PhD work at RCA was like a kind of intermedial kind of text yeah. image thing. I wonder yeah. if you want to talk about that at all. I mean, I just find that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, my PhD work at the RCA um, was about kind of relationships between language and the visual. So is very relevant to, um, to writing a book. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, actually, as you said, it's sort of an, an inter, you know, multiple media sort of project and it actually it had a real shape where there was sort of a photo essay in the middle and then an exhibition and so it was sort of spans various um like part of it was on the page and part of it was literally in a room and so i mm-hmm. think one thing that does happen in this book is that the the style and the tone change somewhat across the length of the book and there are some breaks and i i think part of it is the experience of doing that project, I think, helped me to form a relationship to writing in which things could change within a work and it it could feel like it had moments where things weren't contiguous. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that was important. In terms of the, the art more generally, I think just having a lot of, um, I don't know, like, practice observing things, I think, really helped uh, the visual detail of the book. And also, I think, I think that um, those moments of things not quite fitting together that we discussed, I think, perhaps also relate to the experience of, of maybe starting to write in a way that wasn't focused on narrative, necessarily, and not kind Mm -hmm. of writing with the idea that I was going to to write narrative mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If, that, if that resonates oh yeah completely I mean just the the way that there's something about um, pacing in the book that that I find really compelling um, and intriguing it's like something about the way that information is given i mean there's one key moment that i'm absolutely not going to mention but you know the one that i'm talking about and it's like sentence 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 and in there is some very important information about what has just happened um you know akin to like you know virginia wolf to the lighthouse parenthetical moment which i also don't want to talk about too explicitly but there's there's like very key information that's getting listed like it's in a laundry list or something and so and the emphasis falls elsewhere on like mm-hmm. other things and you're you're playing with time in a way that it's just it, it feels it feels just very effective and also very scrambling and mind bending um and then there's of course like quite an important thing that you do with the very very ending with part 3 of the book um which i think formally is just a really ambitious and striking choice um, so I don't know if you want to talk about any of that at all. I I think it's uh, I'm I'm actually very pleased that you mentioned to to the lighthouse because it was something that it was a book that I had in my mind um, when mm-hmm. I was writing this primarily because of the structure and the little sort of interludes mm-hmm. um, the way that it's mm-hmm. it's organized. I think in terms of the ends, I actually 
I wrote it before I wrote the sort of second part of the book. There's sort of a long mm. part one, a shorter part two, and then a much shorter part three. So I, I wrote it and yeah, the tone of it is a little different. Um, mm -hmm. it's, there's a lot about it that is different from the earlier parts. So for a while I was not sure if I was going to use it. Um, mm -hmm. And then I eventually thought like, no, this is actually, this is the way that this book needs to end. And it just needs to have some important changes in it, like some of which are formal changes and some of which are changes in the lives of the characters and in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it definitely was a feeling of like writing something that really surprised me and then thinking, mm -hmm. can I actually put this in this book or is this going to be too bizarre? And I'm, I'm very pleased that I eventually decided to, to yeah. put it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's, it, it's it's really shocking. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe she's going for it. But yeah. you're not, you, the book sets you up for that because you're already like, oh my God, she's done maybe incest. Like, you know, after that, where are you gonna go? <laughs> and, then, and then you go there. It's a very brave book. And I don't mean that in an ambiguous kind of like, mm, wouldn't have written that. You know, I mean it like genuinely, it's, it's very brave. And like, mm. I really admire that. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I have one more quote that I wanted to read to you, which is from an essay that you've recently published on a platform called Emerge. So you'll know, <laughs> you'll know this quote, but everyone else may be new to them. Um, and this brings us back to the concept of, of climate. And then I think we can open it up to, to questions. Um, you write, any novel written today reflects life amid planetary crisis. Some narrative, others don't. In either case, it contributes like the economic circumstances in the region where a book is set, like the layout of the town where our protagonist is born or our lovers meet or our heist must happen, like the weather or in fact as weather, to the matrix from which a writer makes a story. Work set in other eras are not exempt either. They throw our present circumstances into relief. Place forms fiction and place has become unstable. Every novel is a climate novel now. I like Gutchels, again, again, again. Um, do, do you want to talk about how this novel is a climate novel? Yeah, I mean, I think it is very affected, I think, by the whole sense of um, of time that the climate crisis proposes, which is, I think, more broadly in the essay you mentioned, I, I write a lot about time and um, and and how it sort of a, a new sense of time potentially comes out of of our feeling that we we might actually be living at like the end of history you know, like the actual one. Um, I think, you know, 
certainly a lot of the time in the novel, Lydia is talking about, you know, climate. She sort of, she likes to think that she is doing something. Um, and then sort of by the end of the book, we see what she actually did or didn't do, um, or what all of us actually did or didn't do. Um, and I, so I think it's like another sort of axis or arena where you can see a kind of myopia with the characters um, where they they think they're doing one thing and then perhaps that's not actually what they're doing. You see them sort of, well, Lydia in particular, trying to present herself a certain way. Um, so I think in regards to sort of being a climate conscious person. So I think that it's, yeah, another area where you see a sort of disjuncture between what the characters think they're doing and perhaps what they're actually doing. Um, and it's also another arena, I think, where a lot of the central ethical concerns of the book play out and psychological or emotional concerns in terms of, you know, what am I entitled to do? Uh, what do I think my life is going to be like? And how do I react when it changes radically? Um, when my expectations of the future change radically? Um, you know, when have I caused harm? You know, I think things like that that are very visible in the Tom, Lydia, Caleb triangle, I think also apply in the climate crisis. And then one last thing is just formally, I think in the shape of the book, I think as you get to the end of the book, there is this sort of, um, like a feeling almost of like a contraction in a kind of way. And yeah. I think the sort of structure or shape of the book is made as if it's sort of bracing for an impact in some kind of way, if that, if that makes sense to you. So it's, I think it also really affected the, yeah, the way that I chose to construct the novel. I have to say something about um, this one scene and then, and then we can open it up, but just in terms of, how you actually handle that on the level of narrative, you know, it's like nobody wants to read like a preachy book about climate change, you know, and, and so I think the best work right now is finding a way to deal with it um, in a way that feels like there's something, um, God, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for, that has a kind of authenticity to it that isn't just like preaching at the reader so that the reader puts it down with like, okay, I'm going to go take out the recycling. And <laughs> I'm thinking of the scene at Jane's birthday party. Jane is Lydia's roommate uh, for, for a time. Um, and this, this, it's like I would teach this to my creative writing students if I were currently teaching. Maybe one day I will. But like this moment where everyone's having a conversation and Lydia, the thread of it, I think it's Lydia talking about Tetra Pak and yeah. how, how many layers <laughs> the Tetra Pak <laughs> itself is actually formed of. And, you know, if, if that were just one kind of monologue of Lydia talking about Tetra Pak, you know, we'd all be like, okay, what am I eating for dinner? You know, are we going to deliver or what? Um, but the way that you kind of structure it is this like conversation that everyone is like kind of having, but also not having. And there's also other stuff going on with Caleb and Jane and the other people at the party. It's just, everything's happening at once. It's like a scene from a Romer novel or something. Um, and it's all done through dialogue, but very like kind of juxtaposed, like people saying things and not necessarily hearing each other. I don't know if, if you want to say anything about writing that scene. Yeah, I mean, I think, hopefully, I think the the, the Tetra Pak part, um, her, her speech is kind of, I think, broken up in such a way that you, you see how she feels when she's starting to give it, and then sort of how she um, kind of like doesn't have anything else to say. And then she's sort of charting everybody else's reactions to her speech. So I think, you know, it's about, it's like about Tetra Pak, obviously, but also I think it functions in a way as to give you information about her, how she feels in social situations and like what she's really paying attention to I mean without giving too much like she she says one part of it and then she sees sort of something else that happens in the room and she starts to think oh my gosh I'm really stupid for having said this this one thing about mm -hmm. tech so you get I think as you were saying earlier these sort of granular moments that often have to do with these like 
little things that can seem kind of inane or irrelevant like why has this little thing suddenly become such a big moment but um i think hopefully it um feels i guess real but again it's back to that difficult thing <laughs> exactly exactly like, yeah something people can see in themselves and other people mm, yeah okay i'm gonna stop talking now because there's a bunch of um in the Q&A and I was just kind of leaving it yeah. uh, leaving it aside um, okay la, 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 la. so many good comments and questions you guys we have a question from Alison Timmins who says your prose is brilliant to what extent do you think your book comments on how relationships have been impacted by the digital landscape we inhabit mm, interesting I mean I I think somewhat in that it's sort of a, a style that I think I suppose tries to show the the distance in relationships and the the feeling that you you really don't know what the other person is thinking and while that obviously has always been true and it's true in a lot of the interpersonal interactions with in the book I think it is something that to me feels feels also quite contemporary in that there's um like this kind of blankness and ever changingness that is um, is a function of many of the technologies we use to communicate where you're messaging people and you can't see them and you don't really know how they're reacting and you know et cetera et cetera so i I think, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's not the only thing, but i I think it it the digital landscape definitely does figure in. And then um, Brian Gormley is asking, I like the scene where Lydia and Caleb play their game of inventing background stories for people while they're out eating. Is this a yeah. way of encapsulating the theme of identity and relationship? Mm, interesting. Um, I think that is part of it. Um, now that you say it, though, I, I didn't really, I didn't think a lot about identity while I was writing it, but I think that's a very perceptive point and you're probably right that that's one of the things it's doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I thought about it in terms of, of their relationship and Lydia is sort of more and less maternal towards him as at sort of different points in, in the book and that, that moment of sort of trying to convince somebody to sort of make up stories. It's a sort of, um, it's like the kind of thing you might do with a child. So I thought about it in that reason. And I think also a lot of, like another thing that is happening in the book is the sort of narratives that we tell ourselves about um, the way the world is or the way that our relationships are organized. And so I think, I wouldn't necessarily say identity as much, but I think a theme of sort of, storytelling you know um and how a story should operate is is one thing that comes up there and then we have another question from allison who would like you to talk about your writing process please my writing process um i i so i like set these rules for myself that i'm like i'm going to do it this way and then i break my rules like three days <laughs> later so um my I suppose I try to spend a lot of time working with pen and paper. Um, I try like not to be too online um, or to sort of, yeah, to do things on the computer that that are not best done on the computer. So I, I print things out a lot, which is another environmental like, you know, I don't know, self indictment, but mm -hmm. I, I'm a paper person. And I think, you know, you just, I I did so many different things while I was writing this. I went to cafes and then I wrote at home and then I, you know, I went to a sort of writer's um, group, um, like a kind of co-working space for writers. So I, I did so many different things. Uh, I wrote part of it in London. I wrote part of it in New York. Um, I had a daily word count for a while. I abandoned the daily word count. I like... I was very inconsistent. I think, yeah, I think um, I just try to set up some rules for myself that will work for a short period of time to get myself going. And then I, I generally use them again. <laughs> it's not really very um, defined, but I guess maybe I don't have a very defined 
um, or consistent process. You say in the acknowledgments, thanks to all who work at Burley Fisher Books in Hagerston and at Paragraph in Brooklyn, I wrote most of this book at these wonderful spaces. I was like, yeah. tell me about that. Were you, you were working there or you were just in, in the bookstore working or no, I, you I write in a bookshop? Burley Fisher has a cafe at the back, um, which some 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 listeners I think probably will have been there. And um, yeah, it's really nice. Actually, the the meeting that I had, so I Neil Griffiths, who's with Damian Lanigan, one of the founders of Weatherglass Books, um, approached me and asked me to write or if I if I had anything novel like that I might want to write because I had. I had written Winter Strangers and he had read that. And we actually met for the first time um, about this project. I mean, I had met him before, but he, we met so that he could, when he said, you know, do you have a novel idea? We were actually in Burley Fisher. And then I wrote a lot of the books sort of coming every morning um, to Burley Fisher. So, so they were very, um, very, kind to me and very instrumental in in making this book happen. And then Paragraph mm. is a working space I mentioned and everybody there was yeah. amazing too. Yeah, I think yeah. I sometimes need to get out of the house to focus or I used mm -hmm. to and then lockdown happened and now I've sort of mm. figured out, I guess, how to write at home. Mm. Did you write any of this during the pandemic or was it already done by the time? I wrote part of it during the pandemic. I I sort of had like a sort of a first draft but with aspects that weren't quite working and then I really ironed out a lot of the kinks of that sort of second to last section that sort of part two section between mm -hmm. an important event that we won't discuss and the end um and mm -hmm. yeah I I a lot of that sort of middle bit of like having the the beginning part and having the ending and not knowing exactly how to figure out that journey and I think happened uh, probably yeah towards the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. So a lot of the other questions that we have here I think we've already covered so I, I hope mm -hmm. those people won't mind if, if I don't ask them explicitly. So just to wrap things up I have one last question which I was mentioning to you before we got started. Um, I personally and I think I'm not alone in this just judging from my Twitter feed um, have had a difficult time reading fiction for some reason during the pandemic in lockdown. I mean, there's the fact that like I was looking after my two-year-old, so I didn't have a lot of reading time. But also when I was reading, I just had a difficult time getting into the headspace of fiction. Mm -hmm. And your book was one of the few that I was able to kind of think down into and, and really inhabit and, and enjoy. And a lot of others, I just kind of w opened and was like, mm, and I have to read that another time. Um, I wonder what the experience, what your experience has been during the pandemic of reading and writing fiction and, and what you think, why fiction, like why, why write fiction, why turn to the novel um, in general or now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that a lot of, of what you want or what one wants in approaching fiction is that sort of immersive experience of of concentration and then at the same time of a kind of companionship of the characters and yet a kind of solitude. Um, so perhaps I think, you know, it, it could be particularly appealing at a time when we have been all alone and um, sort of in need of like fictional companionship while we're sort of um, by ourselves um, and yet wanting to have that that concentrated experience that can be so elusive and um, so contrary to a lot of our like online uh, lives. Um, I, I really appreciate that you found it, well, as you described and that you sort mm -hmm. of fell into it. Um, I think I think part of it is that I've I've been told that the the plot really pulls you forward, which is something that actually was the biggest surprise to me about writing it because you read the short stories and they're all sort of very still mm -hmm. in a way. And I had never written a novel before, and I came from a visual art background, so I I did not expect to get the reaction that the narrative really pulled people along. Mm -hmm. um, but that is one of the reactions I've been getting, which mm -hmm. has has really um, 
just thrilled me. I've been very happy. Yeah. There's very little dead space. Like it really, I don't know, it feels, every word feels like it counts, even though it's, you know, the length of the novel and it's, it's so intricately, you know, the, the cliches, I'm so sorry. It's so intricately <laughs> woven. Um, but it really is. It's kind of like dot, 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 like tight dots, pointillist dots that just you can't look up from them. And it's kind of annoying if you have to. And it, so it doesn't even feel like plot. It just feels like writing. It feels like language is is just you, you're in its spell. And again, with the freaking cliches, no. I'm so sorry. You should get another interviewer. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I I thank you so much for this book and for your time tonight. And you know, thank you to everyone for being here, to the LRB for hosting us. Um, I would encourage you all to to seek out this book and and seek out Isabella if there are more things that you wanted to know that I didn't get to. Um, and I hope that we will be reading a lot more from you um, in time to come. Thank you so much. I, I don't really know how to end this because I'm not in charge of the format, so I'm just going to sign off. <laughs> but good night. Good Bye, night. guys. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.